I mean, obviously you want it to be really self-evident and self-serve, but certainly people need more information all the time. They need to know it's there because that's the other thing. You put things out there and people don't necessarily find it. So you kind of got to get it in their face once in a while. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today is Ann Boyd, who is the Chief Marketing Officer at Stoplight. Ann, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. Appreciate you taking the time. For any listeners that don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be at Stoplight. Sure. So I've been working in the technology space for a little over 20 years and started more in the communications realm. So a lot of PR and corporate communications and expanded over time to incorporate more of a brand focus and did a lot of work in media and got to see the intersection of traditional ways of doing business with the new ways of doing business online and the impact that had on traditional media businesses. So it was really, really helpful in terms of understanding the landscape of technology. And then moved into you know communications brand leadership roles, ended up here at Stoplight, where I am the chief marketing officer. A friend you know had worked with at another company had come on and they were at the point where he was CEO and they were ready to really build market presence and try and gain traction as it relates to their product offering. Because it was At the time, we're sort of on the front end of technology and having to tell a story for people about what we do that they might not instantly know about. So we had to do some education and lay the groundwork. And that's one of the things that I've done historically as it relates to a lot of communications and then the brand building. So we really wanted to tell a story about who we were and what we were offering. And then, of course, simultaneously build the product subscription because we had moved into a subscription business and we're looking to both acquire uh, new free and then eventually getting them over to paid. So working that whole flow out. Gotcha. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there and some things that I'm particularly interested in because you've been doing this long enough to know that how we transition from selling in different ways over periods of time and doing it online and doing it effectively But one thing you said there that I want to ask first was just around, it sounded like you were trying to sell a product that the market maybe didn't know existed or didn't really know how it worked. So how did you educate, to use your word, the market on, hey, there's this thing out there? Yeah, this is an interesting one for tools, particularly in the developer space. So we are working, the the product that we had, our founder is a brilliant engineer, and he came up with a product that fit the needs that he had to design APIs and then create documentation and share them with the world and get people using them and be able to do that for multiple projects, multiple APIs. And when he built that, it worked really great. And, you know, he loves it. The business opportunity comes, we go to Techstars, you know, as a hit, get some investors. And we see that there is a lot of interest in the developer community. Our, we have a lot of people who have used the product and were able to effectively incorporate it into their workflow. As we started to gain more and more popularity and these developers are using it, there's sort of simultaneous trends around 
corporations looking at how they sort of deal with a sprawl of technology in their organizations. Also security, how are they managing the workflow of their software development? And APIs had kind of been under the radar in that they were often an afterthought. So you would build your software platform and then you're thinking, oh, I got to interact with this thing over there. Let's build an API. But it started to become more and more central to the process of technology, you know, full stack management and creating platforms to really propel businesses forward. And so as that education started to get, or the demand and the value could be seen at the higher level, and we were getting engineers who were proliferating it within their teams, then you've got the corporates coming in and they want to know, well, how does this work? You know, and they start getting involved in the deal. And so we had a gap between those original users and the folks that were now coming into a position of getting really invested because of the value and also needing to approve for other reasons, you know, reasonable reasons. And so it was, how do we educate and make and facilitate that deal process and maintain the user base and keep that audience very happy and engaged and expanding? And so, yeah, it was a relatively new area to start to bring. And then there's a really brand new segment. I mean, I should say that probably relatively speaking for people who've been in this industry for years and years, but the newer portion for us is looking at folks that weren't even engineers or even like overseeing technology operations, but they're product managers or people, business owners that are starting companies and thinking, oh, I want to have an API. Like this is going to be my product. How do I do it? Yeah, yeah. So those folks really, you know, had to get like really up to speed about what does this look like? What do these things do? That was still at the time I started what is an API was still the most searched term. It's hard to believe in today's terms that that was yeah, something people I mean, that was just 20, educated about. Yeah, 2021. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, so you're talking about that gap between this developer user community and then now these corporates coming in. It was the corporates getting involved because so many developers were now using it that they're like, hey, this is kind of really important to our business now. We need to understand more about it as we continue to use it. Or were they coming in saying, hey, our developers are interested in using it, but before we okay them, you know, we need to understand more. It's both. So okay. we really, and that's one of the big challenges from a marketing and sales perspective and synthesizing that effort in a product-led growth environment is you're going to have both. So we've had very successful entry points where an engineer came in, grew, 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 grew. And next thing you know, they're like our biggest customer. Then we have folks that they want to start that effort, or let's say they're at an established company. They've had kind of a mess on their hands for a while because it wasn't run properly. And the leadership is saying, how do we do this more effectively? And they've heard, okay, you could take a design approach and like, we need to get this tool. And we have had that as well. So the challenges are very interesting, right? And different in terms of how you're communicating. And one of the things on as a marketing organization we've tried to do is create materials that can facilitate either way, right? If you're, you know, our technical materials are still very, very popular. So documentation is really at the heart of our business. And that's what developers historically have really focused on. But then how do we take that information and translate it into more accessible language for the folks that need to work from the other direction? And this is kind of gets to one of the crux of the things that I wanted to mention from a product-led growth perspective is 
if your product isn't working for the people that need to use it, it's not going to grow anyway. So ultimately, yeah. like, even if the leadership puts something out there that they say needs to be done, you've got to provide the value to those users or, you know, and make their lives easier, or it's not going to grow. You might get them on board, but that'll fizzle out pretty quick. I'm curious because, you know, APIs have, have grown to the point where it's sometimes for some platforms, the first thing that's talked about, not an mm -hmm. afterthought. As you've gotten more users, do you find some that are maybe even building their business on your platform? You know, if they decided that, hey, we are API first, our UI or whatever might be secondary to it, are they starting on your platform? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have some really big successful companies that have started original users, the, the OG crowd that have gone on to become public companies that what their whole value prop was based on an API at the core. And we're seeing that more now. We're seeing, we actually did some research recently to kind of flesh out our offering in the mid-market. And it was very interesting to see that users, even like technical users were in many cases, founders or, or heads of a company. Because if you think about it, those folks like our original founder, they have a technical expertise, they have a skill and they want to turn it into a product. And so they're starting with the API at first approach, which some of our folks in our space have really touted. And we're absolutely in fans of that taking that approach where you're thinking about not just your business from a closed minded sense, but your business in terms of how it connects with the rest of the world. And I mean, in this, I would argue that in this day and age, that's pretty much essential. I mean, there's very few things that can remain completely closed off. Right. Do you see a lot of use cases around how really making different systems integrate together, right? That's kind of the point in an API, yeah. right? Is to create an interface into your application that others can use, but do you see others trying to collaborate through it? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we sort of look at the enablement of folks using APIs is to think about how, what are the connections that they're looking to create and who are the developers that are primarily going to consume those APIs? So in many cases, we have companies who are strictly dealing with internal to internal connections, right? There might be different systems within mm -hmm. the company, software that's built over time, large conglomerates that have different things running in different areas, and they might need to be the internal development team that creates those logic and that builds the design and then manages those, the publication of that information. Then in some cases, it's going to be, they need to put their information out. The customer needs to put their information out to a group of partners that maybe it's a specific integration, maybe even one, you know, one connector to their business. And then there may be multiple. We allow for, you know, a multitude of connections on any one platform. And then you may have folks that want to go fully public, right? Maybe they're growing a connector that they want everyone to use and maybe eventually charge for it, like certain large social networks. So it's a really interesting and diverse space in terms of how people are, whether they're making it their core business, this connection, or whether they're improving the functionality and like operations internally. I know, I think your backgrounds in operations, there's like, you know, the mess that can be created. <laughs> and then of course, the folks that have maybe a component. I mean, we have folks that have like a marketplace where developers can go and maybe they have a multitude of products, some large computer companies that we happen to work with that, you know, want to have developers all over the world, taking advantage of those to grow their own platform. 
Well, with APIs becoming so important, and obviously the growth that you guys yourselves have gone through, there's a lot of competition out there now as well, right? Not mm -hmm. to mention just the cloud platforms themselves and the you know API-related services that they've seen. So how have you guys reacted and responded to that, especially in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, it's honestly been good for us to have the opportunity to get in sync with some of the larger players in the space, because we do actually, we have the advantage of being a complement to most of them, because we play a role that's very different. So the space has been dominated by my favorite Gartner acronym, FLAPM, where the full lifecycle API management category. <laughs> that's quite a name. Right. So all due respect. I mean, I think even people internal know that the acronyms are amusing at times. So, but those folks are really looking at a full life cycle of API management, including the deployment, which we are not in that part. We're really in this development stigma for APIs, if you will. Sure. Okay. And, That's a good analogy. And, yeah. And so we need to work with not only the overall development platform that the company is using for their larger, the whole process, but also these other API tools that are going to be used for deployment, for example, at the gateway. So with that in mind, we want to really work together. And we've actually had a great ability to form connections and build great synergies with those folks and because people are using the tool in a collaborative way. So that's, and it is, I mean, it's challenged. Look, when I came on, we had about half a percent of like share of voice we measure like relative to our main competitors, Postman and Swagger Hub. And we've just continued to increase that. And I think we were about 11% for the year last year. So it may not say much to folks that don't follow media regularly, but just to think in terms of the 10x improvement in our brand recognition and you know the talk about us relative to those other players. And part of that is telling a collaboration story. And this space is very niche where, you know, for a long time, there's been these, you know, these really amazing experts in this space. And we are able to talk to a lot of them with our podcast, actually, which is a very effective marketing tool, and then really share the love and just really focus on valuable information. We've been talking a little bit about you know, what we're doing related to how to market the platform, right? I mean, we're always talking about it, but I came on and there was a lot of focus on SEO and kind of gaming the system a little bit. And I think a lot of companies fell into that. Like, how do we just get people to land on our page and get them to convert? And I believed that content had a, some great folks working with me who also shared that opinion that if we build great content, we're not only going to rank better because Google factors that in, but we're also going to really offer value. And mm -hmm. that has continued to be true. And we see that the content people, they want value and they don't even did an experiment last year to sort of drive people right to our free signup page. And it's trying to like accelerate the conversions and we can do it to a certain extent, but we still find that people appreciate more context and they want to be, you know, nurtured in the process. So I do think that, I guess that would be one thing for folks to think about as they start to bring a subscription into the world. It's like, you don't just throw your baby in someone's lap, right? You got to like tell them this is their blanket. This is how you hold it. You know, whatever. I don't know. That's may not be a good analogy, but. I feel like there's often some kind of missed opportunities to see. And I think the thought I had about AI is that I think as we move potentially to a world where folks are getting more narrative responses to searches, 
you need to explain yourself. You need to like have information out there in the world that these crawlers are going to find and synthesize into their results. Well, I'm curious kind of on that point, I'm going on a little bit of a rabbit hole here. That's okay. I do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're talking about the importance of content, right? And the value that it delivers to people and not only helps your own search page rankings. With generative AI and chat GPT and all of that and creating content now becoming a heck of a lot more efficient than it was before. Mm-hmm. And so being able to put just so much of it out there, do you think that's going to devalue it? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I mean, certainly what got me into this business in the first place of communications is writing. Like I love writing. <laughs> My husband actually told me the other day that he, because he does a blog post every month for his practice and synthesizes kind of stories that are, you know, the news of the space. And just for kicks, he sort of checked out the chat GPT and was able to create a, you know, nice blog post with just plugging in the articles that he wanted to look at. And I think there's certainly some really good uses. I've met another marketer, amazing woman who had like nine different sequences that she had set up for the various folks coming into her platform. And there was use of AI to adjust the communication. I mean, I think there's some wonderful short forms for the most part where you can get a leg up probably. So I'm going to face the challenges, which we saw in the major launches too, that even when you own the platform, essentially you're going to have mistakes because this is pulling from a broad like base of information. There's still the need for folks to check accuracy, provide editing. And I think that that's still a very valuable part of the process and something that's going to be, maybe we'll get to that point where, you know, there's an editor bot, but (laughs) we'll see that you could program. I mean, that's actually, interestingly enough, part of what we're looking at too. And it's sometimes I really, you know, think about the parallels of just the process of like a grammar checker, like Grammarly goes through your document, right? Like for Mm -hmm. In order to really scale, those are helpful things. And for APIs where we are trying to offer the same scaling tools, right? To check that you're following a standard. And so I think that there are really important, valuable opportunities for applying that kind of technology. And yeah, I don't think anyone's going to lose a job immediately. No, no. I think it'll just make a lot of people more efficient what they do and and hopefully more effective and Yeah, that might create some attrition, but in the end, I think it'll be good for everybody. I'm curious, are you guys thinking about ways to incorporate that into the product itself? Like having somebody say, hey, I want an API that does this and have it be created? Yeah, not specifically right now, but I think certainly as things evolve, realistic scenario, people can certainly do it on their own now. But I, you know, I think the important part is, like you said, they may generate content to start, but then need to put it through a filter. And, you know, frankly, as a creative person, like I've always felt you need something to respond to, to fire up the creative juices. So sometimes, you know, even a small start of something can be very good inspiration that you continue on with. Of course, the danger of people just like I have kids in middle school right now, you know, copying (laughs) content straight from Mm -hmm. the web. I mean, people are still going to do that. They won't be, you know, winning awards, though. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the plans that you guys offer right now. One thing I'm particularly curious about, because you mentioned it a minute ago, was you bring in your users and kind of use different words, walk, crawl, run them, right? Like 
Hey, yeah. come in and then here's how you do this. And then let's take you to the next step and the next step. How many come in like under your free plan and then move up versus those that come in and go, I know I need this. I'm going to go straight to the pro plan. I'm curious. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And the architecture of that process has been incredibly interesting, <laughs> which is, mm -hmm. I know the worst word. And I mean <laughs> it with the bad and the good, right? It's a really hard process, but what I, we see, so when we launched prior to my arrival, we had services available for pay, but this was our first self-serve subscription. And the process was such that you sign up for free and you start using, and then you get invited to move up. There was no option to pick a plan and go no. to that plan. It okay. was all based on usage. And that was intentional for the founder who felt that the usage was really important to qualify people. And as we grew, we did see, of course, you're laying out this model, you're thinking about where the pay gates need to be, right? What are your parameters for the pay logic, right? For the plans, or are you just doing it simply based on one factor as they grow? So for us, we looked at a combination of both features and users. So kind of seats and usage or value. So that enabled us to trigger pay invitations in different ways, right? If someone wanted to add a member or if they wanted to do, you know, add another feature to their experience. So for example, now they might want to upgrade because they want to have style guides. And this is partly due to where the thresholds were initially, which were quite high to start. And then we kept kind of ratcheting them down as we were figuring it out. So we have tens of thousands, hundred thousand, you know, free. And then we have a fraction of that that's paying as we've reined in. We have passed a thousand customers in the last year. So we'll pass that and it's growing all the time. But one of the things we did think about in this last year a lot, especially the end of this past year, and we're working on some improvements to our payment plans, is that we saw that we had really big gaps where we had a starting plan that was maybe a little too high. There wasn't something to go from free that was more palatable before you're jumping to a $99 a month plan. And then we also had a gap between our that starter plan and our pro plan which was a hindrance for folks that needed another level. And I think about it like a ramp and you're building that ramp going up to the highest level of financial opportunity for you, but it has to correlate with the value that the customer is getting as well. So at the same time, we had those folks coming into free, as I mentioned earlier, we still had folks coming in from the top side where they're saying, we're a big business. We want to look at this technology. And in that case, we do enterprise trials and we were able to let them get into the product for free and then develop a contract and they're a more traditional sale opportunity. So that's a pretty manual process at this point. Gotcha. So that sounds like what went from entirely usage-based model originally into something that's more tiered-based. We've seen in a lot of other subscription services it kind of going back the other way in mm -hmm. some cases because... People are like, it seems to be a barrier of entry in some cases where they're like, this sounds good, but I'm really not sure how much I'm going to use it. So sometimes we're seeing hybrid plans. Or is that something you guys are thinking about? Yeah, I definitely poured over the research and thought about it a lot. And we ultimately felt like 
One of the other gaps we had because of that education gap in general and this newness of the subject matter, relatively speaking, we wanted to present people or be more conscious about presenting options that felt easy for people to identify when they get in there. And I think you can go either way, right? You can try and present something that says, oh, I, you know, they could say, oh, I get that really makes sense to me. That's exactly the problem I need to solve. Or you can go in kind of the other way, which I mean, you know, obviously a pure usage, you're betting that they're going to just give it a try and keep going, right? For our product, there are some features that are just really necessary when you get to a certain level. And when you have a small team of like three people or even a startup company with like five or something, you don't need teams to organize. And there are other things that we do that add additional value in terms of we would call governance features that, you know, you're jumping up to a more professional level. So anyway, my hope is that by helping people self-identify easily, like I'm an individual, I'm doing this, here's what I need you know, will be more helpful at this point to keep the kind of plan model. Because the other thing that's tricky, I mean, I'm, I've actually, I'd be curious to hear from others on this topic, but the architecture of your product is you have to work that out too. So it's not just right. like, hey, let's just flip the switch and turn to mm -hmm. this other model. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that was something that I had to take into consideration too in this climate. So we opted to modify our current structure and give it a go with a better tiering, hopefully. What were the inputs into making that decision? Were you talking to existing customers, talking to prospects, looking at external market data? I assume it's at least a little bit of all of those things, but like, what were the kind of main inputs there? All of the above. So mm -hmm. I pulled data everywhere I could from our customer usage, our current customer firmographics, I looked at including the financial analysis of where the value is coming from. I read a lot on just SaaS pricing model recommendations and things. And I heard the same thing that you heard too. I mean, there is this move in an economic downturn in kind of environment that we need to, people are very cost conscious and we have seen that too, right? If there's a reason to drop something, they will right now. And that's why you have to provide the value, but also make sure that you're checking off the sort of minimum requirements in anything you're offering. But yeah, I think people want to have flexibility. I spent a lot of time even talking to finance folks to sort of understand how they looked at approval of products and also what were the issues that they encountered. I mean, I was fascinated to speak to a CFO who I just mentioned, and I'm thinking he's not going to really care about this. And he was like, oh my God, that sounds so amazing. We've lost so much time and money on projects where developers like that part was all messed up. And like, we, this makes so much sense. So it's just canvassing. I mean, we didn't have enough money to do really like a big proprietary research, but we were able to send some surveys out and get some new information. And then we hope to also, I think this is a really big opportunity for companies now in this space is you can test and you can launch things incrementally and see how they, they go. So we're actually at that phase right now. And we just introduced our basic plan and we're getting it out to folks who have recently downgraded. And so we can see, hey, you told us that plan was too expensive. What do you think of this one? And then from there, go obviously to that 90% of our users that are in the free to try and encourage them to see the value they can get in the paid version. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about churn in general and how you guys approach it. I think the nature of your product is very usage driven, right? Like they're going to have a need for it and therefore mm -hmm. be using the product or they're not, right? Maybe yeah. they don't work there anymore. They don't have that kind of role or the for whatever reason, they just don't need it anymore. And that's kind of a virtually an impossible objection to overcome, right? If they don't yeah, need it, they don't need it. But where you do see it, what sort of reasons and how do you guys address those? So yeah, we've looked at a few buckets of churn reasons and our churn really hasn't been super significant. I mean, we saw a little yeah. uptick towards the end of the year and I think people were just cleaning house, right? And like you said, if somebody who was the advocate has moved on to a different role or a different company, there is that expertise gap and then you need to find your new advocate. But most often we've found that wherever they go, they bring us. So that is a great opportunity too. So, but the too expensive or in our case, because we have some folks grandfathered into levels that were the original free levels. So we have some folks that are technically not in compliance with our current standards and we need to go and sort of work through those. And so we have some folks that said, oh, free does what I need, right? So I don't need, which is to me kind of the same thing. Like, you know, you want to pay for the value, right? And if you're not, if the price is too high for the value, you believe you're getting, or you can just get it for free. People are going to flow where that free is. So that's another challenge. But I think the other really big area we saw, which is, is around, I think you've touched on this a couple of times around usage, right? Like getting implementation and adoption, right? How are people able to not only use it themselves, but incorporate other folks in their organization into the tool and the workflow? And sometimes people are just overwhelmed with like, I don't know how to do that. And frankly, you know, we've been working on bolstering all of that content. That's why, part of the reason why, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we really did want to help create a lot of content. A lot of our, our most popular content often are guides. So that feels like a very reasonable and achievable or solvable problem from our perspective. And we're working on that. And then beyond that, we've had, I mean, at the high level, like the enterprise level, typically we have very low churn in that area. We did have to do a migration from an old platform, which created a, a little bit of churn. That's kind of anytime, you know, you have to build a whole new platform, which I highly recommend not doing. <laughs> but anyway, that's another story. But at the enterprise level, once people have like gotten into it, they're very resistant to changing unless there's some reason that you can't comply with something that is really needed. And we're not in the price range of like massive stuff that people are spending a year negotiating and multi-millions of dollars. That's not our echelon. So it should be a relatively straightforward thing. But there are certainly as um, usage grows and those seat counts grow, of course, people are definitely paying attention. Yeah. Well, what are you doing about the unengaged? Those that have signed up with the platform, especially into the paid plans, but you don't see a login for 30, 60, 90 days or very limited. It's all about usage, right? They're going to get value or they're not. So how are you trying to encourage them? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we just did a big deep dive into what we call abandoned workspaces, right? Like maybe they came in, they signed up and then it's just sitting there and certainly usage on a regular basis. I've been thinking a lot about that where we are, because I've seen some examples that I think are overkill, but I also really do appreciate the helpful reminders. I won't name the company, but I, there's one that keeps sending me a note, like you're at risk of losing your account. Like even though it's free thing and like just using it, right? So they're just trying to juice their usage numbers. 
So that annoys me. And I don't want to like replicate that kind of a thing, but I do want to take advantage of the opportunity to bring new information, helpful information to possibly people that just got distracted or overwhelmed. I think it's really important. The, I mean, obviously at that point, if they're not in there, an in-app communication is not going to be very helpful. <laughs> so we do rely on email marketing still to a certain extent. We find that to be relatively useful with quite a large email newsletter list beyond our customer base. It's a kind of an industry thing, which is really great. And we do take the opportunity when we have something new to link people to, you know, the opportunity, of course, to sign up. We're working on better deep linking too. But the other thing is social media, right? So we're very active in most platforms, although I confess we have not busted out into TikTok yet, but I hope <laughs> soon. <laughs> Knew that's where you were going. So, mm -hmm. but we do have fantastic collection of videos that we've been building up on YouTube. We have content that gets very good engagement on LinkedIn and Twitter. And we're doing some more work in Reddit to, of course, you, in certain communities, you have to be really careful that you're react, communicating in the right way, right? And with folks that understand your position. And so what we do then is there's wonderful organic traction with those, but we also do boost them, if you will, to target audiences. And what we can do is we can look at lists of, for example, folks that haven't been active and we can start to infiltrate perhaps their peripheral vision, if you will, right? Like, so, you know, maybe they weren't using for a while or they haven't logged on, but they're going to see little posts about how, you know, this new ebook or whatever, and it might bring them back into the fold. Yeah, sure. What of those methods have you seen to be the most effective? We have good, we have had some really good initial conversion rates on Reddit and also LinkedIn is really effective for us as well. We get a lot of reach on Facebook still, but it's not as effective from a conversion standpoint. I guess the lesson for me is go where the people are, right? Like if you know who your users are, just go talk to them and make sure that you're providing the most value in their arena. And then in those other places, you know, there's a lot of brand value, right? You need to accrue that for many other reasons besides usage, often funding or awards or other things, executive recognition, things that are going to bring value to your company in other ways. So I think it's a combination, but for those folks that may have abandoned. I think it's tough though. I will say we are keenly aware and I'm sure, I mean, your podcast is partially evidence of the fact that there are more and more offerings all the time. And if you lose people, it can be very difficult to get them back. So one of the key tenants, I mean, I think in one of your questions you had asked about that, and I was thinking about this idea of experience and how important it is. I mean, you've got to get the value first and then you've got to make it easy so they see the value, they can easily buy, and then you've got to make sure the experience stays great, right? And respond. And I think your last guest really taught was on the customer service side of things. And to me, that is just so essential. How you help people utilize and grow is sort of everything. I mean, obviously you want it to be really self-evident and self-serve, but certainly people need more information all the time. They need to know it's there because that's the other right. thing. You put things out there and people don't necessarily find it. So you kind of got to get it in their face once in a while. 
Right. Well, and everybody's going to have at least a little bit of different experience with your product, with your platform, right? Because their background might be more technical, a little less technical. Yes. Maybe they were in a new job and they're just trying to learn it versus somebody who's been doing this forever and is looking for a better way to do it, right? You got to account for the fact that there's going to be different experiences, right? Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I think the beauty of increasingly the personalization technology, which we, you know, we don't have a lot of it on our side yet. I don't have like big budgets, but there are some really amazing platforms that will help you deliver very personalized experiences for people so that you can kind of answer questions before they even come up. That's sort of the dream I have of like, oh, somebody's doing this and we know that usually then they yep. do this. And I mm -hmm. want to like, hey, here you go. Like, it's just so helpful. And of course, always making the opportunity to turn that stuff off if you don't want those kinds of things. But in any case, I think experience is super, super important. Yeah. Answering questions before they're even asked. I mean, is there a better experience than that? Right? <laughs> well, Anne, this has been a really fun conversation. I really appreciate everything that you've shared today. For any listeners who maybe have some questions about what we talked about today or wants to learn more about Stoplight, where can they go? Oh, stoplight.io. Easy enough. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, and again, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation today. And thank you again. Of course. Thank you so much, Nick. I look forward to continuing to listen. Yes. <laughs> awesome. You. Appreciate it. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. 